Our Father, it is good for us to be gathered in this building today, corporately to bring our praise and worship to you. Uh, Father, we pray that your spirit now would come and attend your word. And Lord, make this real in our lives. Help us today, Lord, to understand perhaps our world a little better, ourselves better, your plans and purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. In our home, we have two or three dimmer switches. Now, I've always liked the idea of the dimmer switch because you can turn the lights up full blast if you need sort of primo illumination. Or you can turn them down, of course, ever so gently if you want a sort of softer atmosphere if you've had a hard day at work or whatever it might be. Well, the picture of the dimmer switch can be applied to the Old Testament. If we understand the Old Testament as a document that predicts the Messiah and describes the Messiah and identifies the Messiah, which I think we should, then the dimmer switch is turned low near the beginning of the Old Testament. So that is, at the beginning of the Old Testament, the light on who the Messiah is and what he'll be like is turned on, but it's turned fairly low. But as the Old Testament proceeds through the first five books on to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, the prophets, etc., the dimmer switch gets up, gets turned up progressively, and by the end of the Old Testament, there is a great deal of light shining on the nature of the Messiah, who he is and what he will be like. Well, this morning is the first Sunday of the 2016 Advent season. What I want to do with you today is to give you, over the next four weeks actually, I want to give you an Old Testament portrait of the Messiah. And I start here in full agreement with one of my current seminary professors down at Southern Seminary in Kentucky, James Hamilton, who has written that the Old Testament is, quote, a messianic document written from a messianic perspective to sustain a messianic hope. One more time. The Old Testament, says James Hamilton, is a messianic document written from a messianic perspective to sustain a messianic hope. The Old Testament is really about the Messiah who was to come. This morning, the task before us is to look only at Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, where our dimmer switch is turned low concerning the nature and the character of the coming Messiah. But nevertheless, we need to see that the dimmer switch is turned on. There is some light in the book of Genesis on who the Messiah will be, even if it is only dim light. So I hope you've come today ready and willing to engage your Bible, ready and excited to do a little work with me this morning, to flip around in the book of Genesis to see here in this ancient book, written centuries before the coming of Jesus, to see how Jesus is described in Genesis, 
and how he is portrayed and how he is predicted. Now, all I can give you in the short time that we have is a very cursory outline of the Messiah in Genesis, but I trust that, that this will at least be somewhat helpful. So we begin in the third chapter of Genesis. Genesis 3 comes after the creation of Adam and Eve. I love the sound of Bibles flipping open. (laughs) Genesis 3 comes after the creation of Adam and Eve. Suddenly, this talking serpent is dropped into the narrative, seemingly out of nowhere. This serpent who seduces Adam and Eve into distrusting God. Adam and Eve disobey God. They eat what God had forbidden. And then in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19, I hope you're there with me, God then comes and pronounces curses and punishments on both Adam and Eve and on the serpent. What we want to focus on here is the curse that God pronounces on the serpent in verses 14 and 15. God said to the serpent, because you have done this, that is, because you have deceived Adam and Eve, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust. All the days of your life. And then really focus with me on verse 15. God says to the serpent, And I will put enmity, that is, God says, I will personally instigate hostile intent, animosity, between you, serpent, And the woman, Eve, and between your offspring, or your seed, and her seed, he will crush your head, serpent, and you, serpent, will strike his heel. Now, friends, if you are a person who likes to circle verses or highlight verses or put little asterisks beside verses, Genesis 3.15 is probably a good verse to do that with. This is a very important verse in our Bibles. Genesis 3.15 has been called the Proto-Evangelium in Latin. Proto-Evangelium. In other words, the first gospel. Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel that is recorded in our Bible. Adam and Eve had just engaged in mutiny against their creator and God and Lord. Now a cosmic repair job was necessary and Genesis 3.15 is God's early announcement of the repair plan. Now let's look very closely at the verse. God says two primary things here two primary things first he says that from this moment on so from this point in the garden going forward there will now be a battle raging 
That is, there will now be hostility, enmity, between the serpent and his seed, or offspring, on one side, and the woman and her seed, or offspring, on the other side. Now the question is, are we to take this literally here? In other words, are we to understand from this that from this moment on, there will be fighting between the human beings who descend biologically from the woman Eve on one hand, and the little reptiles or baby snakes that the serpent breeds on the other hand? No. Most definitely, that's not the way we are to understand this. Instead of that, what God means here is that from now on, From that point in the garden going forward, there would be hostility between, listen, two communities of people. On one hand, we have the elect children of God who love God and desire to serve him, the seed of the woman. And on the other hand, we have those who the serpent has led to rebel against God the seed of the serpent. These are people who oppose God and who love the kingdom of self. So between those two opposite communities, there would now be this divinely instigated hostility, this battle, this enmity, and again, all part of the curse for Adam and Eve's transgression against God. So that's the first primary thing that God says in this text. There will now be this battle. The second primary thing we need to note carefully that God says here in Genesis 3.15 is that the battle between these two kinds of people would come, listen, would come to a climactic, decisive moment. He says, he, note the text, he will crush. He will crush. Note very carefully here. The third person singular language. He will crush. This comes straight from the verb form in the original Hebrew. He. That is some future representative figure of the woman's seed, some future warrior-type man who would be descended from Eve, he will crush your head, serpent. But you, you'll only be able to strike and nip at the heel of this future descendant of Eve. What Genesis 3.15 is telling us is that the mortal blow, the death blow, will be delivered and administered on the head of the serpent by some future male descendant of Eve. And the best that the serpent will be able to do to that male descendant is to injure him. To strike his heel, but the serpent will not be able to terminate this male descendant of Eve. Now trust me when I say we will return to Genesis 3.15 
toward the end this morning. But let's travel forward in Genesis to chapter 4. Now, the first verse of Genesis 4 is very interesting in the original Hebrew text. In the Hebrew text of Genesis 4.1, Eve gives birth to her child Cain. And in that moment, Eve says, literally, she says, I have gotten a man, the Lord. That's literally what the text says. I have gotten a man, the Lord. The NIV adds English words to smooth things out so that it says in the NIV, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. But with Walter Kaiser, who taught Old Testament at Gordon-Conwell Seminary for many years, I want to keep the original Hebrew here, I have gotten a man, the Lord, and suggest to you that maybe, just maybe, Eve understood the promise of Genesis 3.15 to mean that her child would be divine in some way. I have gotten a man, the Lord. This child of mine, could it be, says Eve, could it be that he is a divine one sent from God to crush the head of the serpent who deceived us. Now, obviously, if we've read Genesis, we know that Cain was decidedly not the one who would come and crush the serpent's head. But the wording of Genesis 4.1, I have gotten a man, the Lord, may show us that Eve's instinct, her instinct about her offspring was at least right. She understood that a descendant of hers would crush the head of the serpent. Well, as for Cain, verses 2 through 8 reveal to us his actual identity. Cain's jealousy of his brother Abel causes Cain to hate Abel and then slaughter Abel. And thus, we need to see and understand that Cain bears all the hallmarks of seed of the serpent. And then Genesis 4, 17 through 19 tells us, doesn't it, that Cain became the great, great, great grandfather of a man named Lamech. Now, Lamech, in the lineage of Cain, was a polygamist. Lamech had two wives. And Lamech was also, in the lineage of Cain, Lamech was a domestic abuser. Lamech threatened his two wives violently in Genesis 4, 23 and 24. Lamech bragged of killing people. Lamech bragged of vengeance. Lamech was a very unsavory guy, a murderer who had descended from murdering Cain. Now, I hope we can see what Genesis is doing here. Chapter 4, which comes right after God's important declaration in Genesis 3.15, chapter 4 is describing for us the seed of the serpent, Cain and his lineage. This is a lineage, this is a family tree that in fact gets cut off altogether at the flood of Noah. Seed of the serpent. Now, at the end of Genesis 4, and again, I hope you have your Bible open, at the end of Genesis 4, in verse 25, we are taken back in time to another birth, another birth moment for the woman Eve. 
After Abel was slaughtered by Cain, Eve gave birth to another child named Seth. And in that moment of Seth's birth, Eve said, again, with the original Hebrew in view, Eve said, literally, God has granted to me another seed, literally what the word says, another seed in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. So Seth, we need to understand, is Eve's new seed who replaces slain Abel. And we notice very carefully that the last line of Genesis 4 after Seth is born is this. At that time, Seth has just been born, at that time men began to call on the name of Yahweh on the name of the Lord. So already, with Seth's coming into the world, godly things are happening. Good things are happening. People are calling out to God. We wonder, is Seth's lineage going to be the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15? Moving forward, Genesis 5 is the lineage of the family tree of Seth. Beginning at verse 6 of Genesis 5, it tells us through several verses the descendants of Seth. Notice down in verses 22 and in 24 of Genesis 5 that another godly thing happens. Another good thing in Seth's lineage is mentioned. The fact that Enoch, Seth's great-great-great-grandson, Enoch walked with God. So 426... Seth is born, people call out to God. 5.22 and 24, Seth's descendant Enoch walked with God. You get the feeling that it's this lineage of Seth that is the seed of the woman, the godly line, that Cain's lineage was definitely not. Well, Genesis 5.29, notice, it's from this lineage of Seth, from this seed of the woman, that the man Noah comes. Noah of Noah's ark fame. We know him well. One of Noah's sons is named Shem. And Shem receives the blessing of his father Noah in Genesis 9, 26, and 27. And then over in Genesis 11, verses 10 through 26, we have a listing of the descendants of Shem, culminating, of course... The fireworks go off, culminating in a person named Abram, who would later be named Abraham. And then the rest of the book of Genesis, starting at chapter 12 and going forward, gives us the story of Abraham and his descendants. And we need to note that it's only a certain swath or a certain selection of the descendants of Abraham that God chooses and preserves and blesses and sustains as the seed of the woman. For example, it's Isaac, but not Ishmael. And it's Jacob, but not Esau. God acts to select and preserve and sustain a certain branch of the family as seed of the woman, and God does act to preserve the seed of the woman. For example, God causes aged Sarah to conceive Isaac, 
against all rational possibility. And God gives twins to barren Rebekah in Genesis 25, one of whom is none other than Jacob. And God preserves Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through famines and through wars. We need to see in Genesis that, that ultimately it's God who is ensuring, isn't it? It's God who is ensuring that a lineage, the seed of the woman Eve, is preserved and sustained. And why? Because Genesis 3.15 will come to pass one day. Through this lineage, the serpent's head will be crushed by a descendant of Eve. Now, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are concerned, there are five primary promises given to them by God that we need to see in the book of Genesis. First promise, the land of Canaan will be theirs. The Lord God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 12, 7, and he said, to your seed, your offspring, I will give this land. In Genesis 26, 3, the promise of land is reaffirmed to Isaac. And in Genesis 35, 12, it is restated once again to Jacob. Land was the first promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The second promise God made to the seed of the woman was increasing numbers of descendants. Genesis 13, 16, God says to Abram, I will make your seed, your offspring, like the dust of the earth. And in Genesis 22, 17, God said to Abraham, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. The same promise is reiterated to Isaac in Genesis 26, 4. And to Jacob in Genesis 28, 14, increased numbers of descendants. Promise number three that God made to the seed of the woman, the nations of the earth, amen, the nations of the earth would be blessed through this family tree. Genesis 12, 3, to Abraham, God said, through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed, yes, Genesis 26.4, same thing to Isaac. Genesis 28.14, same thing again to Jacob. Blessing to the earth would come through Abraham and through the, through the descendants of Abraham. And then promise number four that God made to this seed of the woman, family tree. Blessed promise, God would be present with them and give them his blessing. To Abraham, God said in Genesis 12, 2, I will bless you. To Isaac, God said in Genesis 26, 3, I will be with you and bless you. To Jacob, God said in Genesis 31, 3, I will be with you. So the promise of presence, the promise of blessing. And then finally, the fifth promise of God to the seed of the woman that we really want to focus on is the promise that kings, 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 are you uncomfortable yet? <laughs> kings would arise in the family tree. In Genesis 17, 6, God told Abraham that kings would come in Abraham's family line. 
Down in Genesis 17, 16, God told Abraham yet again that from Sarai, Abraham's wife, would come kings of peoples. Kings would emerge from the seed of the woman. And the promise was restated to Jacob in Genesis 35, 11, where God said to Jacob, kings will come from your body. Kings. So let's just pause here to recap some of what we've seen in Genesis today. First, there would be some male descendant of Eve somewhere down the road from the Garden of Eden who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Second, God preserved a certain swath of Eve's descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and promised them, among other things, that kings would emerge from their family tree. You almost get the feeling, although the dimmer switch is low as we read Genesis, that a king of some sort would arise from this family tree who would be the Genesis 3.15 crusher of the head of the serpent. Well, let's keep tracing the line of the seed of the woman in Genesis. Where does the lineage lead in Genesis? We go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and then finally to Jacob's 12, 12 sons. And the fourth born son is this guy named Judah. Now, what's interesting is that another one of Jacob's sons, namely Joseph, gets a ton of attention in the book of Genesis. Lots of real estate in Genesis is devoted to Joseph. Genesis 37 all the way through Genesis 50 are really chapters that put the spotlight on Joseph. And Joseph looks like an ideal king. In a lot of ways, he looks like an ideal king. Joseph is catapulted to great success after very humble beginnings. Joseph ends up bringing blessing to the nations of the earth. Joseph looks like good kingly material. And to top it off, Joseph's father Jacob is said to love Joseph more than any of his other sons. Don't ever use Jacob fathers as a role model. So you'd think, would you not, that Joseph would end up being the one favored by God from whom kings would arise. But yet it's not Joseph. It's Judah who Genesis associates with kingship. In fact, right near the beginning of the Joseph chapters, so chapters 37 through 50 of Genesis, Right near the beginning of those chapters, we get Genesis 38 suddenly, which is a chapter concerned, importantly, with the continuation of the lineage of Judah. That's really the whole focus of Genesis 38, which tips us off that Judah is going to be central in the story. Well, right before Jacob dies, he pronounces various blessings over his 12 sons, and it's Judah of the 12 sons who gets what we might call the royal blessing or the blessing that prophesies that there will be an association between Judah and kingship. Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, if you're tracking with me, 
Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, is where we find the aged Jacob's blessing over his son Judah. Listen to what Jacob says to Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Some sort of warrior conqueror types will descend from Judah. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. Notice the association in Genesis between Judah and lions. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Maybe I should do this in the aged Jacob's voice. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Although he probably didn't have a slightly British accent, but anyway. I'll just read the text. Notice verse 10. The scepter. That's a kingly instrument, a scepter. A kingly staff. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes... To whom it belongs, the kingship, and the obedience of the nations is his. <laughs> Jacob here sees his son Judah as some sort of father of kings and kingship. He sees Judah as the ancestor of someone who will come in Judah's lineage later down the road somewhere to rule the nations. You almost get the feeling, don't you? Although, granted, the dimmer switch is set to low in Genesis. You almost get a feeling that a male figure descended from Eve, the seed of the woman who would emerge on the scene one day, will be a royal figure distantly related to Judah. You get the feeling that he's going to emerge on the scene of history one day to crush the head of the serpent and restore what had been lost in the sin of Adam and Eve. Well, we said earlier this morning that the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3.15 can be identified as those who the serpent has led to rebel against God. Those who the serpent has deceived into opposing God. And that a male descendant of Eve would come to crush, finally, the head of the serpent. Well, friends, the motif, we need to see this, the motif of head crushing, or the motif, we might say, of mortal wounds to the head of the seed of the serpent. This is something we find repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament. For example, the beginning of the book of Exodus tells us that Pharaoh wanted two things that were in complete opposition to God's purposes. Number one, Pharaoh wanted to curtail the population growth of the nation of Israel, where God had desired numerous descendants for Abraham. Second, Pharaoh wanted to keep Israel in Egypt, where God wanted Israel out of Egypt so that they could take the land that was promised to them, the land of Canaan. 
Pharaoh thus shows himself in the book of Exodus to be seed of the serpent, someone who is opposed to God and opposed to God's purposes. And so Pharaoh's head gets crushed, if only figuratively, at the Red Sea. Let's go to some more literal ones. In the book of Numbers, a certain enemy of the seed of the woman, an enemy of Israel named Moab, had arisen on the scene. And there's a prophecy in Numbers 24, 17, that Moab's forehead would be crushed. Again, picking up on the head-crushing motif that started in Genesis 3.15. Moab was seed of the serpent, opposed to God, opposed to the seed of the woman Israel, and so Moab's forehead would be crushed, went the prophecy. In Judges 5.26, a woman named Jael literally came along and crushed the head of Sisera with a tent peg. Sisera was commander of the Canaanite army who opposed the seed of the woman, Israel, and Sisera ended up with a crushed head. In Judges 9, a wicked ruler of Israel named Abimelech, who was opposed to God, who killed his own 70 brothers, Abimelech ended up, how? Having a millstone dropped on his head by a woman, crushing his skull. Abimelech was seed of the serpent, opposed to God's purposes, and ended up with his head crushed. And then there was the big Philistine, Goliath. What happened to Goliath, who opposed Israel, who wanted to exterminate, if he could, the seed of the woman? Goliath ended up with a stone sunk into his head, of all places, before his head was cut off. Goliath also was part of the seed of the serpent and ended up with a mortal head wound. The evil King Saul, first king of Israel, off the rails, opposed to God. 1 Samuel 31 tells us he ended up with his head cut off in the end. Add to these examples Psalm 68.21, which talks about God striking the heads of his enemies. Or how about Habakkuk 3.13, which exalts in God crushing the head of the house of the wicked. The Old Testament is full of this head-crushing motif for the seed of the serpent. But it isn't until the New Testament, friends, that the motif escalates and finds fulfillment. It isn't until the New Testament that our dimmer switch is cranked up to full light. First of all, the New Testament throws light for us on the precise identity of Genesis 3's serpent. Revelation 12.9 identifies the serpent explicitly as who? The devil or Satan, it says. So with the New Testament's light, we know that the serpent we were dealing with in Genesis 3 is none other than Satan himself. Second, the New Testament also explicitly identifies for us the seed of the woman. The one who came in the lineage of Eve and Seth and Shem 
and Abraham, the one who came to crush the head of the serpent. Galatians 4.4 says that Jesus Christ was born of a woman. Yes, true. In fact, Jesus is the only one who has been born of a woman without the man's help. Amen? And so Jesus is truly then seed of the woman. Luke chapter 3 traces the lineage from Jesus all the way back to Adam, doesn't it? Showing us that Jesus is indeed seed of the woman Eve. And the genealogy in Matthew 1 helps us understand that Jesus, sure, he descended from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah. Hebrews 7.14 and Revelation 5.5 affirm that Jesus Christ is the Lion of Judah, who did descend from Judah. Jesus is the royal seed, the King of Kings, who comes at last on this earth to undo the ravages of sin that Adam and Eve had brought. Jesus comes at last in the fullness of time to crush the head of the serpent and to free those who are enslaved to him. Jesus comes as an infant, and right away the seed of the serpent, Herod, is attempting to exterminate him. Typical seed of the serpent. Herod is trying to kill off the seed of the woman because he's controlled by his father, the devil. But God acts, and Jesus survives. Later, Jesus is found refusing to bow to the serpent's temptations in the desert. The first Adam bowed to the serpent's cunning. The second Adam will not. And thus Jesus crushes the serpent's head. In the Gospels, Jesus is found driving out evil and unclean spirits. Again, crushing the serpent's head. And even the evil spirits seem to recognize, don't they, the purpose of Jesus' coming. In Mark one twenty four, an evil spirit who had been living inside a man cries out to Jesus and says this, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? The evil spirit in that instance seemed to know something about why Jesus had come. To destroy evil spirits. To crush the head of the serpent. Jesus says to us that he's come to bind the strong man, Satan. Every time I read that passage, I feel like jumping up and shouting hallelujah. To bind the strong man, Satan. Mark 3.27. To plunder the house of Satan. Crushing the head of the serpent. Jesus comes and he even identifies serpentness in many of the religious leaders. On one occasion, he says that the father of the religious leaders was not Abraham, as they had been claiming, but who? The devil, John 8. According to Jesus, the religious leaders facing off against him are seed of the serpent. Their father is the devil. And they tempt Jesus, don't they? They test Jesus, just like their father, the devil, had tempted and tested Jesus. 
But Jesus prevails, does he not, with words of unassailable wisdom and power, crushing the head of the serpent. But friends, it's on the cross. It's on the cross where the climactic occurrence of crushing the serpent's head occurs. You see, Satan thought he had succeeded in exterminating the seed of the woman. Once and for all, when Jesus was found there hanging, bleeding, and expired on the cross. But what Satan didn't understand is that through the cross, God was working his greatest redemptive power ever. And Satan did not see Sunday coming either. When Jesus would rise from the dead, all of it serving to strike the mortal blow on the serpent's ugly head. The cross, according to Colossians 2, verse 15, was where God, listen, disarmed the powers, took their weaponry away, disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Satan's head was crushed by the seed of the woman at the cross and at the resurrection. Hebrews 2.14 speaks of Christ destroying, listen to the language, destroying the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus comes to crush the head of the serpent. 1 John 3.8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason he appeared, it's Christmas time, the reason he appeared was to do what? To destroy the works of the devil, crushing the head of the serpent. And folks, all of this that we've been talking about this morning is what Christmas is all about. How about a Christmas card this year that reads, Merry Christmas! The royal seed of the woman has come and he has crushed the serpent's head. How about that? I don't think it would sell as well as have a shiny Christmas or something like that. I had a seminary professor who wanted a Christmas card that says, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Merry Christmas. <laughs> well, as we draw our Advent exploration through Genesis to a conclusion, I want to draw attention, because we're doing some biblical theology this morning, one of my favorite subjects. I want to draw attention to Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, where the fall of the serpent... The demise of the serpent is discussed in both places. Revelation 12, 9 talks of the great dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, being hurled down. Revelation 12, 10 speaks of the accuser of our brothers, the devil, being hurled down where he belongs. Revelation 20, 10 gives us the sure promise, folks, that the devil finally will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Amen? We ought to be shouting right now. Thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, there to be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Friends, the devil has been defeated, given a death blow at the cross, and the devil will be finally completely done away with one soon and coming day, no more ever to harass the people of God ever again. Now, you and I live in the in-between time, don't we? 
in between the cross and the final overthrow of the serpent. I've used Oscar Coleman's illustration of D-Day and V-Day to describe our present situation. You see, D-Day happened, for history buffs we know, D-Day happened on June 6, 1944. On that day, about 160,000 Allied troops landed on the northern coast of France in an effort to gain a foothold there against the German occupying forces. The Allies ended up having success. D-Day was a major turning point in the Second World War. It signaled the fact that Germany was, in fact, defeatable and that now it would only be a matter of time before Germany was fully and finally defeated. Less than a year after D-Day came... V.E. Day, Victory in Europe Day, when the Allies officially accepted the surrender of the German forces and Hitler's Third Reich came to an end. Well, just after the war ended, the European theologian Oscar Kuhlmann published a book in which, listen, he compared Christ's death and resurrection to D-Day, and Christ's second coming and final judgment to V-Day. The death and resurrection of Jesus dealt the decisive blow to the enemy, Satan. The cross and resurrection were D-Day for the devil. And that meant that V-Day was assured. The final, full, lasting, complete overthrow of the serpent is coming, folks. Final victory will be realized. But you see, that leaves us, doesn't it, in the in-between time. This is the time when there are still skirmishes between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In between D-Day and V-Day, where we live, there are still battles, aren't there? Still mission to be undertaken, still justices to be sought, still souls to be won. The last vestiges of the old passing age of sin, death, and the devil are still with us. So right now, what do we do? We go to Ephesians 6, we put on the armor of God for the last days of the battle. Right now, we are still in wartime, but we must keep in focus that V-Day is coming Because the seed of the woman has defeated the serpent at the cross. And one day, God will dispose of him forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are so good to give us your word, which gives us history from beginning to end. And we are somewhere on that train in the middle or perhaps right toward the end. We're not sure. But Father, thank you that your promises are true, that they have been true. Before we were on the train, before we were alive, they came true. And your promises will come true for us in our individual lives and for your world. We go into the week this week with the hope of the gospel, knowing that our brother and elder, Jesus Christ, has defeated the serpent once and for all. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the Son who redeems us, the Spirit who renews us, and the Father who receives us, for so great is his love, be gracious to us and bless us 
and make his face to shine upon us. Amen. Amen.